hello there. Pull up a chair. This is going to be a multiple part series and this is seeming to work right now because there's a lot of catching up that I need to do to bring you up to speed with the different aspects of this deception. And I will try my best to keep, they're going to be in segments. So specifically, you can listen to a segment about printing, the railroads, and let me give you a quick list here. Um, so yeah, it'll follow this and it will be in segments. Which segments? Well, I don't really know yet. <laughs> the first time I tried the segments, I think I put the introduction at the end, but I, I have a little better system going now. Okay, so here's what I think is going on. And of course, people need to decide for themselves. I've got a lot of work ahead of me with all this magic stuff. So let me knock out some of these basic deals today, okay? The basic deals will include things like photography, castles and monuments, and historical places, and also railroads, a huge deal in all of this, right? And printing. How did we get all of this printing? So anyhow, so... I believe that what they've been doing is a system called doling out, D-O-L-I-N-G. What does doling out mean? Well, it means, it could mean the, dis the distribution by the government of relief payments to the unemployed. It could also mean a share of money, food, or clothing that has been charitably given. Or it could mean to give or deliver in small portions. It's interesting to me because it has kind of a dual meaning, right? Because they refer to doling out as giving us unemployment money. Well, we pay into all these systems. See how everything becomes flipped around. And people actually do that in their day-to-day -day lives now, model the same behavior. They feel like if they give something to somebody, no matter how deserving, they should consider themselves lucky. Where'd they get this idea from? Well, I would argue the government has been using the same system to collect taxes from us and then dole out the money back to us, right? And people seem to ignore the fact that when they dole out money, like for example, in all this so-called stimulus money, they doled it out primarily to themselves. Their first effort was a big swoop of cash for themselves. Then they played games with, well, we will get you peon some money at this date. They struck that out for a month. See, that's called doling out, but it's also become this hierarchy thing that I see it, okay? That they have created themselves as the little emperors, the little kings and queens that they prefer to see themselves as, right? And we're the serfs and the serpents who are getting this stuff doled out. I didn't mean serpents, we're not snakes, but you know what I mean. We are the ones in the lower position that are getting things doled out to us, right? But what's also being doled out, and this is my view right now, is they are doling out information that they already knew. They already knew all of these things before they doled them out publicly. They had all of these capabilities. <laughs> so let me explain in section by section how these things happen and what dates they all happen. and 
doesn't it seem interesting that they all seem to kind of happen around the same time and their explanations are even more fascinating. So anyway, so pull up a chair and I will be doing these one by one as I see that, you know, how much time each one takes. But it'll give you a, a really good basis of information to see exactly where I'm going with the rest of this stuff, especially when I get to the magic. Now, I'm just now sorting out all the magic stuff. I, I, I have defined what magic it is. And next I will, oh, wait a minute. Next, after this little segment, I will do a segment on the generations because that's also key in how this all works. How they defined our generations is fascinating, and it all tends to evolve around these same dates. Funny how that's all worked out, right? So anyhow, so let me get going here, and you will be hearing a segment on each of these things. So it looks like there will be five or so segments. That's what it's looking like now. So anyways, if I don't get a chance to say goodbye, be safe out there. Goodbye for now. Okay, let's talk about photography. I'm already batting one for one. <laughs> I lost the first photography file, so. Okay, when was the first, how, how did the process go? The first photograph was taken in 1827. Then they came up with something called a dogger type, D-A-G-U-E-R-R-E-O type. And that was in 1839. And I'll explain more about these down the road here. The camera allegedly started in 1841. The School and Art of Photojournalism began in 1849 to 1865. Celluloid rolls of film were developed from 1835 to 1887. Kodak came into play in 1888. Moving pictures, 1878 to 1900s. 35mm film and the Leica, L-E-I-C-A, that came about in 1913. And digital came into play in 1975. So, what do we know about this? Well, <laughs> I was trying to figure out what pictures were around of U.S. presidents. I first looked at this huge um, group of, if you looked up like U.S. presidents through history, you'll find all of their pictures. And I was a little bit fuzzy about which were paintings and which were actually photographs. So I thought, well, the only way to clear this up is to go look for some information, right? So what did I find? Well, a bunch of stuff. The first authenticated image of Abraham Lincoln was the dagger type of him, and that was taken when he was a U.S. congressman elect in 1846. Okay? The dagger type portraits, they were the first and the most commonly used photographic process. They were revealed in 1839. Okay? So 1839, they say this came out, but they said that his picture was taken in 1846. So, in 1839, a new means of visual representation 
was announced to a startled world photography. Although the medium was immediately and enthusiastically embraced by the public at large, photographers themselves spent the ensuing decades experimenting with techniques and debating the nature of this new invention. The works in this section suggest the range of questions addressed by these earliest practitioners. Was photography best understood as an art or a science? What subjects should photog photographs depict? What purpose should they serve? And what should they look like? Should photographers work within the aesthetics established in other arts, such as painting, or explore characteristics that seem unique to this medium? The first generation of photographers became part scientists as they mastered a baffling array of new processes and learned how to handle their equipment and material. Yet they also grappled with aesthetic issues, such as how to convey the tone, texture, and detail of multicolored reality in a monochrome medium. And you could distinctively see this process through the early, you know, from the Dracula movie up until the early film noir. They actually showed a great deal of brain power during that era. They, the, the cinematography is terrific, right? So what they did was they often also explored the same subjects that had fascinated artists for centuries. Portraits, landscapes, genre scenes, and still lifes. But they also discovered and exploited the distinctive way in which the camera frames and presents the world. Key point there, right? They also discovered and exploited the distinctive ways in which the camera frames and presents the world. There were many thousands of photographs taken during the Civil War, and in some ways, the widespread use of photography was accelerated by the war. The most common photos were portraits, which soldiers sporting their new uniforms would have taken in studios. These early studio pictures were very interesting, and I know, in fact, they did exist. And they did a lot of strange things during the Victorian photos. Um, they took um, dead people's photos. For example, you would, I would learn to look at old photos, and you would look for certain signs to see if the person was dead or alive. Because uh, when they started showing the dead people, it was about the time that you know people couldn't blink, and they had to uh, explain more of that in a minute. But people had to stand very still. So what they did during this era was if somebody died in the family, like a child or a parent or somebody, they would dress them up and they would prop them in a chair or something. And usually there was like a curtain behind this, this dead body dressed up. And sometimes you would see like some hands <laughs> actually holding the body up. So yeah, they, they did quite a few kind of bizarre things with these studio things, but I imagine they did the studio thing for quite a while because um, studios probably brought them more money, let's face it, right? So there were many thousands of... Sorry, I just read that, okay. Enterprising photographers such as Alexander Gardner traveled to battlefields and photographed the aftermath of battles. 
Gardner's photographs of Antium, which was a Civil War thing, for instance, were shocking to the public in late 1862, as they depicted dead soldiers where they had fallen. 1862. In nearly every photograph taken during the war, there is something missing. There is no action. <laughs> At the time of the Civil War, it was technically possible to take photographs that would freeze action. But practical consideration made combat photography impossible. Photography was not far from its infancy when the Civil War began. The first photographs had been taken in the 1820s, but it wasn't until the development of the daguerreotype in 1839 that a practical method existed for preserving a captured image. The method was pioneered in France by a man named, well, man or woman, Louis Daguerre, and it was replaced by a more practical method in the 1850s. The newer wet plate method employed a sheet of glass as the negative. The glass had to be treated with chemicals, and the chemical mixture was known as collodion, C-O-L-L-O-D-I-O-N, collodion. Not only was mixing the collodion and preparing the glass negative time-consuming, and it took several minutes, but the exposure time of the camera was also lengthy. They said between 3 and 20 seconds, but I don't think that's true, but I think it was longer at that point. If you carefully look at studio portraits taken at the time of the Civil War, you'd notice that the people are often seated in chairs, or they are standing next to objects which they can steady themselves. That is because they had to stand very still during the time the lens cap had been removed from the camera. If they moved, the portrait would be blurred. In fact, in some photographic studios, a standard piece of equipment would be an iron brace that was placed behind the subjects to steady the person's head and neck. So, most photographs in the 1850s were taken in studios under very controlled conditions with exposure time of several seconds. However, they had always been a desire to photograph events. So, in the late 1850s, a process using faster chemicals was perfected. 1850s, right? And photographers, this is a key company I want to point out here. It was the E. and H. T. Anthony and Company of New York. They began taking photographs of street scenes, which were marketed as instantaneous views. 1950s, okay? This, eight, this Anthony and Company was the largest supplier and distributors of photographic supplies in the United States during the 19th century. Company founder Edward Anthony was a Columbia College trained civil engineer who had studied photography with Samuel F. B. Morse. And they started a photography business in 1842, another date by opening a dagger-type gallery in New York. Five years later, this H.T. Anthony person, uh, he opened a separate shop devoted exclusively to photographic supplies 
And as sales grew rapidly, they ceased operations, or they ceased operations to go where the real money was, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. In 1850, Anthony began the production of dagger-type cases, because they, they all typically, at least the ones I saw, the dagger-type photos I would see at auctions all came in really pretty cases with gold on the outside. <laughs> Sound familiar? Dagger-type cases, camera boxes, and photographic chemicals. His brother, H.T. Anthony, joined the business two years later in 1852. The short exposure time was a major selling point, and the Anthony Company amazed the public by advertising that some of its photographs were taken in a fraction of a second. One instantaneous view was published and widely sold by the Anthony Company, it was a photograph of an enormous rally in New York's Union Square on April the 20th, 1861. This, this big gathering was supposedly following the attack on Fort Sumter. A large American flag, presumably the flag brought from the fort, was captured waving in the breeze. It's funny that big, big mass production had to be the flag from this place, right? <laughs> May that flag fly forever. Okay, um, so while the technology did exist to take action photographs, Civil War photographers in the field did not use it. The problem, of course there's always a problem, right? The problem with instant photography at the time was that it required faster action chemicals which were very sensitive and would not travel well. Civil War photographers would venture out in horse-drawn wagons to photograph battlefields, and they might be gone from their city studios for a few weeks. They had to bring along chemicals they knew would work. They knew they would work well and under potentially primitive conditions, which meant the less sensitive chemicals, which required longer exposure times. The size of the cameras also made combat photography next to impossible. The process of mixing chemicals and treating glass negatives was extremely difficult, but beyond that, the size of the equipment used by a Civil War photographer meant that it was impossible to take photographs during a battle. The glass negative had to be prepared in the photographer's wagon or in a nearby tent and then carried in a light box, light-proof box to the camera. And the camera itself was a large wooden box that sat upon a heavy tripod. There was no way to maneuver such bulky equipment in the chaos of a battle, with cannons roaring and mini balls flying past. Photographers at the time tended to arrive at the scenes of battle when the action had been concluded. So Alexander Gardner arrived at Antium two days after the fighting, which is why his most dramatic photographs feature dead Confederate soldiers. And they went on to say the Union dead soldiers had mostly been buried by that point. <laughs> It's unfortunate, <laughs> some of this stuff, I'm sorry, it's just, it's just so crazy. 
It's unfortunate that we don't have photographs portraying the action of battles. But when you think of all the technical problems faced by Civil War photographers, you can't help but appreciate the photographs they were able to take. So then I was looking to find out this squishy question of what photographs exist of U.S. presidents. <laughs> there were a couple of places that I looked, and one of the questions was people said, assuming never been photographed means never been photographed at any point in their lives, including their post-presidential years, then the only U.S. presidents who were never photographed were the first five presidents. Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. John Quincy Adams, the sixth president, was photographed on August the 1st, 1843, over 14 years after he left office and while he was serving in the House. Andrew Jackson was photographed by a renowned photographer, Matthew Brady, at his home in Nashville of 1845. Martin Van Buren was also photographed by Brady during some time during that time. So I'm not sure if those photos exist. So then I was asking more questions. <laughs> and somebody said, technically, there are at least three answers to this question. The first president to be photographed was President William Henry Harrison. And the photo was taken on March the 4th, 1841, the day of his inauguration. This photo no longer exists. <laughs> President John Quincy Adams was photographed on August the 1st, 1843, two years after Harrison and over 14 years after Adams left office making this photo the earliest existing photo of a U.S. president. That would be John Quincy Adams, taken on August 1st, 1843. Now, uh, <laughs> there's one other. <laughs> president James K. Polk was, was photographed on February the 15th, 1849. Now, remember... Harrison and them were 1841-1843. So Polk was photographed on February the 15th, 1849, while in office, making this photo the earliest existing photo of a U.S. president in office. So it looks like Polk and James Polk in 1849 is what we're looking at, right? No, this is, I, I'm not saying, this is still a little bit squishy, right? So... So then they went on to say that this thing of Polk doesn't qualify in any of the three categories. What they're saying is there's a photo of Abraham Lincoln which doesn't qualify in any of the above categories. Well, what is that? It was taken sometime in 1846. So, yeah, that's where the photograph is a daguerreotype photograph of Lincoln, and that's supposedly when it was taken. Well, we've captured the world of photography. Go look on yourself. It's a very fascinating thing that they've cooked up, so...
Okay, let's talk about printing. This is a subject that I am very familiar with. In my background, I worked in the group called Marketing Communications, and our job was to take the crazy ideas and present them in some fashion <laughs> via literature, ads, and things like that. Now, I specialized in trade shows. I was like the second trade show consultant in the United States at that time because trade shows were a fairly new element in all of this visual medium. But anyway, so I got to thinking about those old religious prints I was selling. Well, come to find out, the name was R. R. Donnelly, okay? R. R. They like those two R's. I think back to back that means some sort of butterfly. And of course they love the letter D. So it's R. R. Donnelly. That was the name I was seeing printed at the bottom of those religious prints, a lot of them. So, and I'll get back to later when I kind of wrap my head more around you know, there were a lot of things sold in this area that were sold by individual sales reps during the 20s and stuff. Because I have on my wall some early chalkware pieces that I bought from a neighbor who got them from her mother. So I'm very clear where they came from. And there was a big company out of Chicago that had sales reps in different farming communities. They drove around and sold this stuff, right? So... There's a way this stuff all got transported here. But anyway, so who is R.R. R. Donnelly? Well, they started out the big dogs in the printing business, and they still are. Surprise, surprise. R.R. R. Donnelly is an American Fortune 500 integrated communications company that provides marketing and business communication, commercial printing, and related services. Its corporate offices are located in Chicago, Illinois. I didn't look for any more data, but as of 2007, R.R. R. Donnelly was the world's largest commercial printer. But I can imagine with the, um, you know, the internet, less printing probably down, but who cares, right? R.R. R. Donnelly & Sons Company was founded in Chicago in 1864 by Richard Robert Donnelly, his son, Reuben Donnelly, they founded the otherwise unrelated company formerly known as R.H. Donnelly. So they started off as R.H. Donnelly and became R.R. Donnelly and Sons, okay? Robert, excuse me, Richard Robert Donnelly, that's where the R.R. comes from, established his company in downtown Chicago, which in 1870 became the Lakeside Printing and Publishing Company. The business was destroyed by the Chicago Fire of 1871. After a series of reorganizations and expansions, Donnelly built the Lakeside Press Building on Plymouth Court, and in 1902, began construction of the R.R. R. Donnelly & Sons Company in Chicago. The company aimed to produce books and periodicals with impressive modern design and mass-printed commercial and reference material. Lakeside Press also produced Encyclopedia Britannica, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, 
promotional literature for the Model T Ford, catalogs for Sears Roebuck, among others. The print, the press produced high quality collectible editions for the Chicago Caxton Club and the Limited Editions Club. Donnelly was the official printer for the 1933 to 1934 World's Fair. It was called A Century of Progress, and unfortunately, I had one of those in my hot hands here. <laughs> I sold it a couple of years on eBay. Um, yeah, it was the original print was made by these Donnelly people, right? So I thought it was pretty funny when I remembered them from the religious thing, and I remember, oh yeah, they, they did that other book that I handled. So the company designed and printed official tickets, postcards, posters, brochures, and magazines which displayed the company's distinctive modernistic designs. The company eventually became a global provider of printing and print-related services. So, it, from 1922 to 1945, the director of design and typography was William Kittredge who commissioned other well-designed art, well-regarded artists and designers. So they went out and that, that was when they started, they were doing all these mass printing and they were getting other people who did actual design work to have them print them into posters and stuff like that. R.R. Donnelly's cartographic production facility grew to be one of the largest custom map, map making, making maps. <laughs> okay, I'll stop laughing here. R.R. <laughs> Donnelly's cartographic production facility, that means maps, grew to be one of the largest custom map-making companies in the United States. In the early 1990s, the division successfully integrated routing technology with its digital map databases and launched a separate company, Geosystems, which several years later became MapQuest. I'm sure you've heard of MapQuest if you've looked for anything online. The Calvin plant was closed in 19, 1993 following the cancellation of the Sears and Roebuck catalog. Sears stopped sending out those massive catalogs in 1993. And then, um, <laughs> well, things didn't go too well for the um, Donnelly family. Um, the Calvet plant was closed in 1993 following that cancellation. And um, what happened was Donnelly's, Donnelly's handling of the closing of this plant, this Calvet plant, which closed, created a lawsuit which went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. It was a lawsuit that alleged that Donnelly discriminated against black employees, and Donnelly settled the lawsuit in 2003. So, let me see here. Yeah, I have some history of this, more history of the, of the, the kid that really ended up taking it off. In 1908, T.E. Donnelly, son of the founder, opened the Lakeside Press Apprentice School. Donnelly, a Yale graduate and a trustee of the University of Chicago, felt that the recent revival of the ancient practice of apprenticeship 
was unsatisfactory because unions dominated the rules. He was determined to open a program modeled on the apprentice training at the Chex Printing Company in Paris, France, which combined instruction and practical experience. The whole plant, in the words of one official description, is the laboratory of the school. The inscription for the 1913 handbook for apprentices stated that the employer should realize that engaging an apprentice is a much more important task than hiring a journeyman. Well, <laughs> I think apprenticeships were founded for free labor, okay? Like in Washington, D.C., they give their own kids free apprentices, but all these people are already rich to start with, right? And any of the real kids they drag into these apprenticeship deals are usually just ones that they, uh, they, they just use them for free labor. I don't need to carry on about this. So anyways, the company was one of the many which at the time offered apprenticeship courses of this type, ranging from the American Bridge Company and the American Locomotive Company to the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. So they really got this apprenticeship deal going for everybody else, right? In the early years, 90% of the company's executives and supervisors were graduates of the apprentice training school and were either college graduates who had gone through a training program or had come up through the ranks. The firm's turnover remained low. As Chicago became home to a northward migration of black people, the workforce became stratified as non-whites found it hard to attain management position. Racial tensions in the 1960s, gee, funny how that works out. That's when all those racial tensions just happened to happen, right? Okay, racial tensions in the 1960s further weakened the company's ability to meet technological chances and global competition. Declining for fortunes led to layoffs, and this, this apprenticeship school closed in 1993. Okay, they did this four-book campaign. I'll cover that, and then I'm off to the next subject. <clears throat> Donnelly launched a Four American Books campaign in 1926, which culminated in their publication in 1930. The aim was to establish that the company's modern commercial machinery could produce illustrated books to rival high-quality presses in Europe and to establish a reputation as a printer of fine trade editions in order to enter the mass market book industry. So, the choice of American authors reflected a growing pride in the literature. Well, that's enough about printing. See you soon. Okay, let's, <clears throat> excuse me, let's talk about castles. Everybody tries to teach the young girls to go live in a castle and get kissed by the fairy tale prince. I wonder why all this talk about castles. Why do we even have castles? Well, because they're big, glorious, and they're flashy. So, um, first I looked at what is the meaning of castles in the Bible? 
castle is considered a military fortress, also probably a kind of tower used by the priests for making known anything discovered at a distance. Castles are mentioned in Genesis as a kind of watchtower from which shepherds keep watch over their flocks by night. I'll run through a few of these Bible quotes, which I found interesting. First one, I, I don't remember what edition of the Bible they came from because I don't understand all that. So I'm just going to tell you the quotes. But just look for castles in the Bible and you'll find it. The, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their towns and by their castles. Twelve princes according to their nations. And they burnt all their cities wherein they dwelt, and all their goodly castles with fire. That's a fascinating one, isn't it? And they burnt all their cities wherein they dwelt, and all their goodly castles with fire. Quite a statement from these pyromaniacs, isn't it? Okay, now... Let me scroll down here a second. I'm trying to learn to scroll and not flip past 100 pages. So, Another quote. Your strongholds will be iron and bronze. And as your days are, so will your strength. Castles. Um, one couple more here. Now these are their dwelling places throughout their castles in their coasts. Of the sons of Aaron, of the families of the Kohanites, for theirs was the lot. So, yeah, um, I don't know. <clears throat> and Josephat waxed, waxed great exceedingly, <clears throat> and he built in Judah's castles and cities of store. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um and jackals shall cry to one another in their palaces, and wild dogs in the pleasant castles. And her time is near to come, and her day. There's a lot of fishy things about these castles that I found interesting. You know, they do a lot of things like say, like, well, it was sandstone, but they switched it to limestone because of this reason through history. So, yeah, um... <clears throat> Let me just, I went through a whole bunch of castles and um, just noted some things that were interesting. Um, these were the biggest castles. There was a huge castle, Orgondizi Castle in Poland. Enemy troops set the place on fire and the damage was such that it was never rebuilt. After the Second World War, Ozendikiet, was taken over by the government and work started to preserve it. You'll hear key words like preserve. That means muck it up, right? In 1973, the castle was open to the public. Imagine that. The atmosphere remains of the, the atmospheric remains of the medieval fortress, which includes two well-preserved towers, was used for a location for Netflix series The Witcher and based on some Polish books. Okay. Menard Castle, Republic of Ireland. Lonely wind-whipped Menard, M-I-N-A-R-D, Castle sits high above Kilmurray Bay on County Kerry's wild coastline. All that remains of the crumbling structure 
built in the 16th century by the Fitzgerald clan, is part of a rectangular tower made from sandstone blocks and mortar. The coastal stronghold once had four floors, but it was damaged in an attack by Oliver Cromwell's troops in the 17th century, and its inhabitants were all killed. Another, I, what I try to do is pick one from each region so it doesn't get like, you know, I'm not going to go through every single castle. If you want to go through more of them, it's really an interesting look at um, deception. <laughs> you know, like how tricks work. Okay, there's one in Wales, the Dolbardarn, D-O-L-B-A-D-A-R-N castle. Dwarfed by the majestic mountainous landscape of Snowdonia, Baldarn Castle was once a strategic stronghold by Lillowin the Great the last native ruler before Wales came under English rule. The war-torn remains of its large and raggedy round stone constructed in the 13th century tells of Dolbarn's past glories and ultimate defeat. Well, it looked to me like it was a shambles, but... <laughs> Heidelberg Castle in Germany. The silhouette of a partially ruined Heidelberg Castle is a meliconic sight, with its empty windows gazing over the lively university town of Heidelberg. It sits on a perch in the Ottawald Mountains as part of the crumbling site, which actually contains two castles, dating back to the beginning of the 14th century. It was first mentioned in 1303. The palace, however, was plundered and set ablaze by the French army in 1689 and struck by lightning twice, including one devastating strike in 1764 that was to signal its demise. It was abandoned and left to rot over 300 years ago. Despite this, the historic remains have long drawn tourists up the rocky hilltop high above the river Neckar to reveal in the Gothic romance. Okay, I'm gonna flip past. Let me get back here. Then we have Corfe, C-O-R-F-E Castle in England, rising out from Dorset's rolling hills for over one thousand years. The rambling ruins of Corfe Castle are a truly captivating sight. Starting as a Saxon stronghold, the first stone castle was built by Henry I, William the Conqueror's son, in the early 12th century. Its mighty keep was hewn from limestone and visible for miles around. Both King John and Henry III spent time at Corby Castle, which eventually became a private residence in the Elizabethan era. When Elizabeth I sold it on, it was substantially published by the wealthy Banks family. The stronghold met its fate in the 17th century when the Banks family, they were supporters of King Charles I, they came under siege from Oliver Cromwell's forces. Lady Mary Banks defended her castle heroically, 
but was ultimately betrayed by one of her own soldiers. And parliamentary forces later blew the structure up with gunpowder. The property was ultimately returned to the banker's family, although it was never rebuilt. <laughs> so, let's see here. I guess people who look at all these old castles and declare that they're from thousands of years ago, I mean, let's face it, there are people going to examine these things and determine ages, right? Let's use a little bit of logic here. Uh, can you identify a castle from the 1400s versus the 1800s? <laughs> I know I couldn't. <laughs> At least I'm being honest, right? They make these things look war-torn and burnt up. And Actually, it's a very clever thing, okay? Because here's what I think. And I'm still looking at all this stuff. I haven't. I'm just sharing where I am right now with this stuff. I haven't necessarily ruled anything completely in or out because that's sloppy research, okay? I still have to keep looking. Um, so, yeah, I think that this was really set up almost like early Disneyland, right? Except with all these castles and stuff, people got to tour around all of them, and then Disneyland made it all in one location. So, anyways, obviously people who think these are really that old must have some knowledge that I don't have because I find them all to be highly suspicious. So unless you know how to really examine old limestone versus sandstone, then I think we probably might take a closer look at these things are fake, right? Okay, there's the old Wardour Castle, W-A-R-D-O-U-R Castle in England. Uh, <laughs> despite the Bibliothèque Wilshire setting and lush landscape grounds, the decaying ruins of this once thriving fortress residence retain a whiff of tragedy. The Hexagon Castle was built by a wealthy courtier and soldier, Lord John Lovell, in the 1390s. Stay, it stayed in the family until it was forfeited to the crown in 1461. Old Wardour later passed to a prominent family in 1574. And I'll cut to the chase here. The castle weathered two sieges during the 17th Civil War, 17th century Civil War, suffering major damage before ultimately being left to decay. Okay. We have the Chateau Le Moth Chandreurs in France. When a historic but unprotected derelict chateau in the Loire Valley was at risk of being demolished and sold to developers, 27,000 people from 115 countries came to the rescue. Parts of this fairy tale esque moated chateau, whose tunnels, stone balconies, and grand walls have been overrun by foliage date back to the 13th century when it was constructed by the wealthy Bakay family, B-A-U-C-A-Y family. Interesting history, right? Then we have the a castle in Spain, Monte Garam. The solitary silhouette of this broken 11th century stronghold looms tragically over the plains of Huesco in Aragon, northern Spain. With its mighty steep walls and deep moat, Monte Garan was once a, form once a formidable site. It was built on the site of an existing castle of Arab origin. 
evidently to help the king of Aragon, somebody request, I don't know, whatever. But anyway, so yeah, you'll find that a lot of these things tend to be rebuilt on top of existing structures. So, um, here's one in Scotland. <laughs> this is the Dunnotter, D-U-N-N-O-T-T-A-R castle in Scotland. Huddled on top of steep, steep red stone cliffs with the North Sea pounding below, Dunnart Castle cut, cuts a haunting figure, especially when its tumble-down remains are swathed in sea mist. To say its past has been tumultuous is something of an understatement. Donatar was under siege from its earliest beginnings and witnessed some seminal moments in Scottish history. Originally the site of a 5th century chapel and some Pickish fortress, it was razed to the ground by Vikings in the 9th century, and King Donald II was murdered there. It was the site of numerous violent battles between Scottish and English. And then there was an interesting one in Croatia. It's called the Cesargrad Castle in Croatia. It said, Straight from the pages of Sleeping Beauty, this creepy tree-clad ruin was likely abandoned in the mid-17th century, and it has since become almost entombed in vegetation, with origins possibly dating back to the Knights of Templars, our friends the gypsies, right? They circled through that area. The earliest mention of the ancient stone fortress is in 1399. So, yeah, um, under the ownership of the Counts of Soda, the castle was rebuilt and enlarged numerous times. It was badly damaged and seized in 1573 during the region's Great Peasant Revolt, although subsequently repaired. However, it was eventually left to be reclaimed by nature, nature after its owners built a new stronghold. The ruins are near the border of Croatia and Slovenia and sit above the Solta River. Austria. Dunstein. D-U-R-N-S-T-I-E-N. Dunstein. Stein. Sitting on a craggy rock high above the Danube River, the ruined medieval towers of Dunstein blend into the landscape like natural outcrops. Built between 1140 and 1145, the rock castle is where Richard the Lionheart was imprisoned on his return from the Crusades. This was after he is said to have provocatively torn up the Austrian flag and refused to share his war gains with Leopold the fifth Duke of Austria. The lofty castle was demolished by a Swedish blast under General Torsin in 1645 during the Thirty Year War conflict. Although it was partially restored, Durgenstein was never inhabited again and left to disintegrate over the subsequent centuries. This impossibly romantic ruins 
has since become a must-see of Austria's picturesque and is also a UNESCO listed. UNESCO is a word you want to look for, U-N-E-S-C-O. What this means is that the slimy psychopaths at the UN have established them as an official site. <laughs> okay, Italy, Rocca Calisco. A small community grew around the soaring fortress in the Arbruzzo region, which eventually came under the control of the powerful Medici family in the 16th century. However, both the village and fort were severely damaged by an earthquake in 1703 and deserted. The mysterious form of the limestone lookout has since become part of the wild and beautiful landscape of the Gran Sasso National Park. We have a castle in Ukraine, Pidihirsi Castle, P-I-D-H-I-R-T-S-I. Though much faded in its beauty, Pidihirsi Castle remains plenty of a palatially features that distinguished it when it was built as a grand fortified residence for Polish military commander Stasenlaw Koblenski, 1635. Now, if I really thought these people were honest and stuff, I would spend time practicing their names, but I'm not going to. <laughs> um, designed with a moat and drawbridge, along with brooding fortified walls on each side, the large square castle was also to serve as a defensive stronghold. More fortifications were added after it was attacked by Ukrainian Cossacks in 1648. Hudisky remained in the hands of Polish military leaders into the 18th century, but it was captured and looted by the Russians during the First World War and further vandalized during the later Polish-Soviet War. Previously part of Poland, the region was annexed to Ukraine after the Second World War, and the castle was used as a tuberculosis sanatorium. A lot of these places had the ones that they didn't completely destroy. Um, they what they did was they kind of rebuilt them and they had multiple uses. So that's why I'm still thinking about all those the saint asylums, right? Because this was the history of what they were doing with these castles. There was also a voracious fire that ripped through the once splendid residence in 1956, and it was abandoned, which are said to be riddled with ghosts, are now part of the Lynch National Art Gallery. Flipped it right into a money-making thing, right? Slovakia, the Spis Castle, S-P-I-S, soaring up from a rocky promontory, this imposing hilltop castle in eastern Slovakia, was built in the 12th century on the site of an earlier settlement. Then part of the Kingdom of Hungary, the large and forbrooding stone fortifications were built around an inner Romanesque palace. It was designed to keep Hungarian royals and nobles safe from the Tartars, which originally raided the region in the Middle Ages. Spitz Castle was further fortified in the 1940s and partially rebuilt in the Gothic style, with the tower 
reinforced and elongated. It was here that John Zapola, the last king of Hungary before the Habsburgs took over, was born. Oh, those those Habsburgs. Am I going to die saying, what happened to the Habsburgs? <laughs> It'll be my final death that they could put on my funeral mark, right? She was screaming about the Habsburgs as she went down. <laughs> so let me get this straight. The last king of Hungary before the Habsburgs took over was born there in this Spee's castle. Okay, and then, of course, tragedy always follows, right? In 1780, the vast castle was destroyed by fire and fell into ruin. It was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site in the 1990s and has become an atmospheric location for movies as well as a major tourism site. Okay, um... I'm going to look for a few more here. Um, there was one, there's an interesting castle that I found in um, Glasgow. And it became a hidden mental hospital. Hidden away in a secluded rural spot in Glasgow, Lennox Castle Hospital is an abandoned building with a very interesting history. Lennox Castle is a large Victoria-managed mansion to the west of Lennox Town in Stirlingshire, built in the form of a castle. It was first a private home, later part of a large mental hospital, and now stands in a ruinous condition caused by neglect and fire. The house was built as a three-story red sandstone mansion in the style of a Norman castle. So, um, well, I don't know. I'm going to do a few more here because I think they're interesting. So, Castle Howard is a stately home in northern Yorkshire, England. Because I was also looking at houses that became, excuse me, castles that were houses, castles that were... Anyway, I put this file together quite a while ago. So, I, I did a combined effort of castles that were in ruins and castles that um, became other things. Um, Castle Howard is a stately home in North Yorkshire, England, within the civil parish of Hinkleslip, loaded, located 15 miles north of York. It is a private residence and has been the home of Carlisle Branch of the Howard family for more than 300 years. Castle Howard is not a fortified structure, but the term castle is sometimes used in the name of an English country home that was built on the site of a former castle. So now you've got people building homes on sites of former castles. See how squishy this becomes? The house is familiar to television and film audiences as the fictional Brideshead, both in Granada Television's adaptation of Brideshead Revisited, blah, blah, blah. Okay, now... Um, I have a couple more that are pretty interesting. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You have to um, you have to take a look at them all, right? Okay, here's an interesting one. No castle in the world has been used in film and television more than the Alnwick A L N W I C K Castle, loaded in loaded, <laughs> located in North Lumberland, England. 
It's been used as a filming location since the 1960s, and it's been featured in movies such as Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, starring Kevin Costner. It's been a veritable plethora of popular British television shows, going back to Rowan Atkinson's show called Black Adder, and going all the way up to downtown, Downton Abbey. However, Alric's biggest claim to fame is in its use of the Hogwarts School of Witchcraftry and Wizardry in three of the Harry Potter films. <laughs> Notable scenes include Harry's first lesson and blah, blah. I, I never saw those movies or saw those books, so I don't really know. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. That castle became a movie set. Huh, wonder how that happened. Okay, there's another one in England um, that's known for its art collection. Belvoir Castle is located in Lecherchere County in England and is known for the extensive art collection and houses. The castle has served as a home for the Manners family for over 500 years and has also served as a seat of the Duke of Rutland's for over 300 years. The number of movies and television shows that have been filmed here since the 1980s. The biggest picture film was Da Vinci Code, starring Tom Hanks. Another claim to fame is the film Young Sherlock Holmes, which feature, featured the first photorealistically CGI character, a knight made out of stained glass. So they used that for that movie, the CGI deal. Okay, this one I started off with, this one, and I started wandering around all those other stuff. <laughs> It's the Nurseswein Castle in Germany, the most famous castle in the world, is one of the greatest castles in Europe, and one of the most famous tourist attractions, part theater, part fairy tale. Um, Nurture Castle embodies the soul of King Ludwig II of Bavaria, popularly known as Mad King Ludwig. That's where he hung out. So yeah, um, this one is Spain, the Alcatraz, eh, not that important. Um, so then this was interesting because I was looking at people who built castles as homes. Uh, because it's interesting because these homes, which were built like castles, certainly look like the old castles, right? <laughs> George Bolt. General manager of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City and manager of the Bellevue Stafford Hotel in Philadelphia and his family enjoyed an earlier frame cottage on Hart Island. That was the name of the original island, which they greatly expanded. In 1900, George Bolt launched an ambitious construction campaign to build a huge masonry structure, one of the largest private homes in the United States. He engaged the architectural firm GW and W. D. Hewitt and hundreds of workers for a six-story castle as a present to his wife. In addition, four other masonry structures on the island are architecturally noble. Equally distinctive is a huge yacht house on neighboring Wellesley Island where the Bolts had another summer home and a vast estate incorporating farms, canals, a golf course, tennis courts, stables, and a polo field. 
The construction of Bolt Castle ceased abruptly in early 1904 after the death of Bolt's wife, Louise Keller Bolt. Bolt never returned to Hart Island, but continued to spend... Island, I don't know, he, he hung around some other place after that, but he abandoned it, right? Abandoned, abandoned, meaning that they didn't go to the trouble of putting in all the furniture. <laughs> now, is am, am I right? I don't know. I you know I certainly seem highly suspicious of these people, but you're gonna have to think for yourself. I actually visited this castle, so I took a, I took down some data on this, Hearst Castle. Now, at the time, unfortunately, I've never been a really good tourist, right? So. When I visited there, it was because somebody was from out of town that wanted to visit Hearst Castle. It would never have occurred to me to spend time at Hearst Castle. <laughs> so I didn't pay particular attention when I was there, to tell you the truth. So Hearst Castle, known formerly as La Cuesta Encantada, that's Spanish for the Enchanted Hill, is a historic estate in San Simeon, located on the central coast of California. Conceived by William Randolph Hearst, the publishing tycoon, and his architect, Julia Morgan. I have more information about Julia because I found her or him kind of interesting. The castle was built between 1919 and 1947. George Hearst, William Randolph Hearst's father, had purchased the original 40,000 acres estate in 1865 and Camp Hill, which became the site for the future Hearst Castle. It was used for family camping vacations during Hearst's youth. In 1919, Hearst inherited some $11 million in estates, including the land at Sam Simeon. He used his fortune to further develop his media empire of newspapers, magazines, and radio stations the profits from which supported a lifetime of building and collecting. Within a few months of Phoebe Hearst's death, I think that was his wife when she died, because then he ran, uh, I'll get to that in a minute, he had all these famous Hollywood affairs. <laughs> Within a few months of Phoebe Hearst's death, he had commissioned Morgan to build something a little more comfortable up on the hill. That was the genesis of the present castle. Morgan was an architectural pioneer, America's first truly independent female architect. She was the first woman to study architecture at the School of Beaux-Arts in Paris, the first to have her own architectural practice in California, and the first female winner of the American Institute of Architects Gold Medal. Working in close collaboration with Hearst for over 20 years, the castle at San Simeon is her best-known creation. So what does that tell you kids? What this tells me is that um, old Julia here, Morgan, was the first man to become... <laughs> was the first man to become an architect before, obviously, it was all done by women, right? Women wearing hats and fake beards. <laughs> In the roaring 20s and into the 1930s, Hearst Castle reached its social peak. 
originally intended as a family home for Hearst. Now, I don't know where this Melissa comes in. Melissa was his wife listed, but it I don't know what happened to Phoebe. Maybe Phoebe was, I, I don't really care, but <laughs> I lost track of somebody's all I did. Okay. Originally attended as a family home for Hearst, his wife Millicent, and their five sons. By 1925, he and Melissacent had effectively separated, and he held court at San Simeon with his mistress, the actress Marion Davies. Their guest list comprised most of the Hollywood stars of the period, Charlie Chaplin, Cary Grant, the Marx Brothers, Greta Garbo, Buster Keaton, Mary Pickford, Jean Harlow, Clark Gable all visited, some on multiple occasions. Political luminaries encompassed Calvin Coolidge, Winston Churchill, what a fat, ugly woman that person is, <laughs> while other nobles included Charles Lindbergh, the one who fake killed his kid, right? P.G. Wodenhouse and Bernard Shaw. Visitors gathered each evening at Casa Grande for drinks in the assembly room. I'm trying not to flip this up too many pages. <laughs> assembly room. They dined in the refectory and watched the latest movie in the theater before retiring to the luxurious accommodations provided by the guest houses of Casa del Mar, Casa del Monte, and Casa del Sol. During the days, they admired the views, rode, played tennis, bowls, they played bowling or golf, and swam in the most sumptuous swimming pool on earth. While Hearst entertained, Morgan, she's back in the picture, built the castle, was almost under continual construction from 1920 until 1939. The work remaining at the end of World War II until Hearst's final departure in 1947. So, yeah, they were building away at that castle. So, I am going to take a break here, and next I will be talking about monuments. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about monuments. Big things they erect to celebrate things. What's a monument? A monument is a type of structure that was explicitly created to commemorate a person or event, or which has become relevant to a social group as a part of their remembrance of historic times or cultural heritage due to its artistic historical, political, technical, or architectural importance. Some of the first monuments were dolmies, or I don't know, something like that. Construction built for religious or funerary purposes. So first monuments were megalithic constructions for religious or funeral purposes. Examples of monuments include statues, memorials, historical buildings, architectural sites, and cultural aspects. And if there is a public interest in its preservation, a monument can, for example, be listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. 
I only found a couple or one thing about the Bible. The Bible talks about monuments, and it says, Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself a pillar which is in King's Valley. For he said, I have no son to preserve my name. So he named the pillar after his own name and called it Absalom's Monument to this day. Kind of funny because these people don't really have sons to preserve their names, do they? If they're really women wearing wigs and acting like men. <laughs> That's why they push all their fake genealogy stuff and all their crown titles and their bloodlines. And Sometimes the truth is hiding under something so obvious it amazes me that people are just staring there blindly. Okay, let's start off with Arlington National Cemetery. is a military cemetery of the United States located in Virginia. The Arlington Cemetery has remained as a central point of National Memorial Day comm commemorations in the country since 1868. It's spread amongst 253 acres of approximately 500,000 burials, burials each year. Moreover, Arlington Cemetery is also the final resting place of John F. Kennedy and President William Taft. <laughs> well, I guess that's where they're going to put Jimmy Carter when he dies is um, Arlington. Kind of funny, Jimmy Carter and uh, Rosalind already have grave sites at um, the Kennedy thing with those flames and stuff, right? <laughs> In their world, you can get dead twice. Okay. Lincoln Memorial. Oh, I was at Arlington. Sorry. I removed the pictures to make it easier to scan because I was, I set up all these files so I could study all the pictures. So, Lincoln Memorial, located in Washington, D.C., commemorative the great president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. The neoclassical monument was built between 1914 and 1922 by American architect Henry Bacon. The historic monument contains a large 19-foot-high sculpture of Abraham Lincoln. The sculpture was made of Georgia marble and designed by Daniel Chester French. Today, the Lincoln Memorial, or monument, is administered by the U.S. National Park Service. Lincoln Monument contains stone engravings of popular second of his popular second inaugural address and the Gettysburg Address, made by Abraham Lincoln, or somebody who looked like him. <laughs> it is also the site on which Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his well-known I Have a Dream speech. I guess if he had a speech saying I have a nightmare, it'd probably be a bit too obvious, right? On the south wall of the monument, painted with a beautiful mural that depicts the Angel of Truth, freeing a slave. The monument is also surrounded by 36 enormous columns. The columns actually represent 36 of the Union states during the last period of Abraham Lincoln. Well, everything has a deal, right? 36 was at 933? I don't know. Okay, Washington Monument is an iconic structure 
and historic monument built to honor the first president of the United States. You know, the one we don't have a picture of? <laughs> George Washington. Standing at 169.2 meters, it is the tallest stone structure in the world. The construction of the monument was started in 1854, but the lack of funds and American Civil War halted the construction of the monument. It was halted between 1854 and 1877. It was finally completed in 1884. The architectural style of the final monument also differs much from the originally planned one. In 2001, a Virginia earthquake results in severe damage to the Washington Monument. It took two and a half years for the restoration work. The Washington Monument has an obelisk shape, another penis-shaped building. There are 897 steps to reach the top of the monument. The interior of the monument has a collection of hundreds of the commemorative stones from different countries around the world. Today, Washington Monument attracts more than half a million visitors every year. I guess that's probably under the Park Service. <laughs> Someday, just like shooting fish in a barrel. Mount Rushmore. Talk about a vanity thing. Put your face on a bunch of rocks. Mount Rushmore National Memorial represents four huge sculptures of the heads of four influential presidents. The presidents on Mount Rushmore are George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. The sculptures are carved on the granite face of Mount Rushmore. The historical monument of South Dakota was sculptured by Gutzon Boholm and Lincoln Orheim, whatever the hell they were. Um, the 60-foot-high faces on Mount Rushmore represents presidential greatness in one of the most important works of art in the country. <laughs> it was historian Dwayne Robinson of South Dakota suggested an idea of carving needles on faces of Mount Rushmore to attract more tourists to the state. Needles, like N-E-E, needles. I don't understand what that even meant. To make his idea a reality, he approached famous American sculptor Dwayne Robinson in 1920. But considering the quality of rock face and national interest, the sculptor Dwayne Robinson suggested another idea to carve the faces of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Lincoln. And what happened to, I guess they like Teddy more than uh, the other one. The project started in 1927. I'll have to look for it to see if there was some rational between these four people, but as of right now, we'll just light on passes. <laughs> the project started in 1927, and after two years, President Calvin Coolidge raised $25,000 for the project. It took 14 years for the completion of sculptures with the help of 400 workers. Approximately 4,500 tons of rocks were removed from the rock face during the construction using dynamite. <laughs> 
the noses of the sculptures on Ru Mount Rushmore are 20 feet long, <laughs> and, and the mouths are 18 feet wide. Okay, the monument not only attracts millions of visitors around the globe, but also spreads the greatness of the four greatest presidents of the United States for generation. The U.S. Capitol Building is an important historical monument and seat of the House of Representatives and Senate. The Capitol Building, constructed in different periods of time and to today's standards, is an outstanding example of 19th century neoclassical style. The Capitol Building houses Senate offices, Supreme Court, Gallery, Library of Congress, and Home Office. There are 540 rooms in total in the monument. The cornerstone of the Capitol Monument was laid by the first President of the United States, George Washington, on September 1873. The construction on the first of the part of the Capitol was completed in 1800s, designed by three successive architects. By the end of 1811, the house wing was added to the monument. Unfortunately, the British troop set fire on U.S. Capitol in 1814. Supreme Court building and Senate were added again in 1819. The enlargements and renovation of the monument was completed by 1850. The dome of the Capitol has a height of, I don't know, it was designed by American architect Thomas U. Walter. The Statue of Freedom, made of bronze, also crowned the Capitol Dome since 1860. That's the Capitol thing on the top. That's what these Tartaria people are saying used to generate electricity between these buildings. <laughs> well, first, I would have to think that we actually needed electricity generated. If we were so advanced, do we really have to have things shooting off the tops of buildings to generate electricity <laughs> somehow logically and i'm still thinking about all this it's just things have to sort of make a little bit of sense right i mean they have this idea that between the water the water thing is actually interesting and that feeds into the magic thing but they have cooked up this deal where they're saying that the domes of these buildings were how people power uh, anyway it's too much to talk about it's crazy so anyway the gallery in U.S. Capitol contains many paintings and sculptures that depict important events and people in U.S. history. And this is one that the Statue of Liberty, okay, just spend some time on this one. <laughs> the Statue of Liberty is an important historical monument and part of American culture located on Liberty Islands of New York Harbor. The colossal statue is actually a gift from France to America to commemorate the de Declaration of American Independence. The statue was designed by French sculptor Frédéric Astin Barthold and dedicated on October 28, 1888. <laughs> I, I feel like I keep repeating that word 1888 a lot. And here, here's the zinger, right? 
the statue the statue actually represents the Roman goddess of freedom, Libertas. So the Roman goddess of freedom, named Libertas, is what the statue actually. <laughs> I'll look later if there's any more connections than that, but the sculptor, or not sculptor, the, yeah, I guess he sculpted it, <laughs> whatever the story is, right? It could be a big mold of <laughs> resin for all I know. Bartholdi served in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 as a squadron leader of the National Guard and a liaison officer to Italian General Giuseppe Garibaldi representing the French government and the army of Bogus. As an officer, he took part in the defense of Kalmar after Germany. Distraught over his region's defeat over the following years, he constructed a number of monuments celebrating French heroism in the defense against Germany. Among other projects was the Lion of Belfort, which he started working on in 1871. And he, not finishing the massive, oh, he didn't finish that big deal on the um, lion until 1880. The story goes, in 1871, he made his first trip to the United States, where he pitched the idea of a massive statue. <laughs> he pitched the idea Okay, I was laughing to her. Of a massive statue gifted from the French to the Americans in honor of the centennial of American independence. So, 1776 is the first fake date. And I think they have inverted some of these numbers, but I don't want to confuse each. <laughs> because if you're going to start flipping around history, you got to have some you got to have some sort of a system that doesn't appear on the surface to, to stand out to everybody else. But there's, I think there's a system here because you have to code things because otherwise, if you're trying to lie for hundreds of centuries, <laughs> it would get kind of hard to keep the numbers straight. So, yeah, uh, in 1871, he made his first trip to the United States where he pitched the idea of a massive statue gifted. The idea, which had been first broached to him in 1865, which would have been six years previous to 1871, by his friend Edouard René de la Bosse, resulted in the Statue of Liberty. So, he, kind of a long story how he made the trip, got the idea from his friend, anyway, whatever. After years of work and fundraising, the statue was integrated in 1886. During this period, Barthold also sculpted a number of monuments for American cities, such as the Iron, excuse me, Cast Iron Fountain in Washington, D.C. So they did a cast iron monument in Washington, D.C. that was completed in 1876. And then I poked around a little bit about who this guy was. And in later years, in 1875, he joined the Freemasons' Lodge in Alacoste, Lorraine, in Paris. In 1876, Barthold was one of the French commissioners in 1876 to the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition. 
There he established bronze statues of young vine grower, and I don't know who these people are, Peace and Genius. Oh, this was a good one. He did a bronze statue called Peace and Genius in the Grasp of Misery, receiving a bronze medal for the latter. His 1878 statue, Girl became the property of the French state, I know. A prolific creator of statues, monuments, and portraits, Barthidoli exhibited at the Paris salons until the year of his death in 1904. He also remained active. Who cares? Okay, the interesting thing is, is that it's called... See, there's something here with this New World Order stuff, because there's some countries they call New World, and some they call Old World. Basically... And I'll hope to get to this when I do the um, generational stuff. But the New World countries are basically the United States, um, Australia, New Zealand, and some parts of Africa. So that's what is being considered the New World. So just use your thinking caps there and start to think, huh, how does this all add up? Well, it adds up a great deal, if you ask me. So anyway, so this deal is called... Liberty Enlightening the World, commonly known as the Statue of Liberty. Oh. Anyways, yeah, I've already gone through all this. Um, the Arlington, yeah. Okay, well, that's it on monuments. Okay, let's talk about railroads. Kind of trying to get this in somewhat of an order. Okay, the United States federal government first funded roadways through the Federal Aid Road Act of 1916 and began an effort to construct a national road grid with the passage of the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1821. Um, the, well, I'm starting with the cars first. Sorry about that. Um, in 1926, the United States numbered highway systems was established, creating the first national road numbering system for cross-country travel. Voted on in 1916, enacted in 1926. Also, I will note, that I found that a lot of the original tunnels built for trains became highways in some cases. But, you know, too much data to dive into all of it, right? Let's just stick with the highlights here. So, um, it started with the Allegheny Railroad, and that would be in Pennsylvania. And there's a lot of details as far as, I don't know, how they sort this out, but <laughs> if you're interested, it's not that interesting, but... <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking for dates here, right? Because now we know the cars were hitting the road in the early 20s, but that doesn't mean because the highways were enacted that everybody had hopped into cars and was riding around. It just gives us some dates to look at. The Allegheny Portage Railroad was the first railroad constructed through the Allegheny Mountains in central Pennsylvania, United States. It operated from 1834 to 1854, 
as the first transportation infrastructure through the gaps of the Allegheny that connected the Midwest to the eastern seaboard across the barrier range of the Allegheny Front. Approximately 36 miles long overall, both ends connected to the Pennsylvania Canal, and the system was primarily used as a portage railway, that means hauling things, hauling riverboats and barges over the divide between Ohio and the subsequent rivers. Today, the remains of the railroad are, I'm going to flick up here without jumping into 100 pages, okay, the railroad are preserved with the Allegheny Portage Railway's historic site operated by the National Park Service. All these things become park service attractions, like for example, um, what was that, Pelican Bay? Uh, was it Pelican Bay? Oh, I don't know. You know that island out there. Uh, that was, um, this is all park service now. And that's where they start to racket in the money. Okay, looking for dates. The railroad was authorized as part of the main line of public works legislation in 1824. It had five inclines on either side of the drainage divide running the bridge between this area and the desert. I'm not that concerned about that. I'm just looking for days. Except for peak moments of severe storm, it was an all-weather, all-seasons operation starting in 1824. So um, along the rest of the main works, it cut transport time from Philadelphia to the Ohio River from weeks to just three to five days. So now we can start to put together some dates and times based on what the people in Montana were saying and all of this to say that, well, <laughs> I think we're looking at the mid-1800s. But One of the old Portage Railroads from Holland's Day to Jones Johnsontown, 36 miles, began in 1831 and took three years to complete. It included a tunnel 900 feet long. So yeah, I guess that dynamite really started to pay off around here, right? So anyway, um, on inclined planes, stationary steam engines pulled up and lowered down cars by hemp ropes, and they switched to wire ropes in 1842. I'm just trying to hit the dates here, right? There's no reason to become experts in the training business. <laughs> I'm just trying to connect from when did they get these trains to get those orphans, get all those people tricked into going to the homesteads. So occasionally the rails were laid upon the extreme verge of giddy. Oh, they said that it made people giddy. And looking from the carriage window, the traveler gazes sheer down without a stone or scrap of fence. Yeah, they people were kind of like amazed because remember, they hopped off of boats coming from Europe. <laughs> Their next hopping point was definitely a train. It wasn't a car. It wasn't a truck. It wasn't a bus. It was a train. Okay, we've established that. In 1850s, the main line of public works and its portage railroad was rendered obsolete by the advance of railway technology and railway engineering. 
Early in 1946, the legislature chartered the Pennsylvania Railroad, called the PRR, see those two R's there, to cross the entire state in response to plans by the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad to reach the Ohio Valley through Virginia. In December 1852, trains started to run between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, shortening the travel time from four days to 13 hours. Construction of the New Portage Railway, a 40-mile realignment to cross the Allegheny. This was also, these railroads were very important to take care of those poor people up in Appalachia. I just can't get those people out of my mind. So, yeah, so um, I think that um, <laughs> we have a date for... And, you know, I like to confirm these things because I don't want to just start guessing about when these times all intersected. So, suspiciously, they seem to keep intersecting, right? And what happened last was near a half century later, the graded roadbeds of the descending sections east of this tunnel were re-railed with standard gauge freight tracks. That would have been... The line was reopened as a freight bypass line in 1904. I am guessing, and I'll look a little bit further, but I am guessing that all of this directly coincided with getting those people to those homesteads and those orphans transported around this country. Funny how that worked out, right? There was no way to get anywhere except for trains. Talk about control and isolation. And how much you would have bet they were probably already in California cranking out movies before this happened. Controlling the population became quite easy when you dole out the information. So next, another subject. That's enough for railroads. Look for yourself. It seems to me that the plan is moving along like it indicated. Okay, bye. Okay, let's talk about telephones. Ring, ring. Okay, I'm not going to go very deep into this one. Just hit the highlights of when did they dole out the telephones. But before I forget, at the end, a song is going to play that you might want to listen to. I believe that they use songs to communicate to us. And I believe it even more now that I'm getting into the magic part of all of this. The song is called The End by The Doors. The words go, This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend. The end of our elaborate plans. The end of everything that stands. The end. No safety, no surprise. The end. I'll never look into your eyes again. Can you picture what will be? So limitless and free. Desperately in need of some stranger's hand. In a desperate land. Lost in a Roman wilderness of pain. <coughs> Jeez, excuse me. I don't know how you stand around here between me coughing and the dogs barking. But anyway, so, yeah. What are the most important dates in the history of the telephone? Well, the first date is 1874. And Alexander Graham Bell invents the telephone, beating Elisha Gray by a matter of hours in 1877. The very first permanent 
outdoor telephone wire was completed and it stretched a distance of just three miles, okay? Now, there's going to be a lot of things in this timeline that I'm clearly going to buzz right on past. <laughs> um, actually, I just highlighted a few things to take a look at because, you know, they did a lot of stuff. We don't need to understand when they figured out what switch. But just keep in mind, in 1979, when I was working in Silicon Valley, we used telegraph to communicate. Telegraph services, right? Because we didn't have any of these other things available. And we didn't even have, at Intel, we did not even have computers at our desks. We used typewriters. And they did all the accounting on microfiche systems. So, yeah, that really wasn't that terribly long ago. So, let's look at this. Um, they go through a lot of garbage with the patents and all that kind of stuff. It's totally not interesting. About when he applied for the patent and what was granted and blah, 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 blah. Okay, so let's get down here to the stuff I highlighted to talk about. 3rd of March, 1885, the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, AT&T, is incorporated as the long-distance division of American Bell Telephone Company. It will become the head of the Bell system on the last day of 1899. So, um, in 1887, the government of the United States moves to annul the master patent issued to Alexander Graham Bell on the grounds of fraud and misrepresentation. The case known as the government case is later dropped after it was revealed that the U.S. attorney, Augustus Hill Garland, had been given millions of dollars of stock in the company trying to unseat Bell's telephone patent. <laughs> They're just crooks from the very beginning, aren't they? Just crooked, crooked, crooked. Okay, so, and the other thing I forgot to mention on this DSMV thing, it really means DSM-5. And when I was researching the DSM-5 for the medical stuff about where they identified all of our mental problems, um, the people... I was doing it online on YouTube a few years ago to identify their views on pedophilia and psychopaths. And interestingly enough, very shaky views, right? Too little views. Um, so, yeah, you have to take all of these things into some sort of overall perspective with things, okay? Because it's all being made up as it goes along. So, at least that's my view. If you think this stuff is well planned, then I'd certainly like to hear your views on that. So around 1900, they had a, uh, they started with the Western Union Telegraph Company, okay, made the first international telephone call or over telegraph cables at 9.55 from his office in Key West to Havana, Cuba. This John Atkins guy, <clears throat> excuse me, was reported in the Federal Florida Times Union and citizens as saying, for a long time, there was no sound except the roar heard at night sometimes, caused by electric light current. He continued calling Cuba and finally came back the words, clear and distinct. I don't understand you. <laughs> okay, so that was 1990. Okay, 1915. Remember, people are now being shuffled by trains and stuff all over the country, right? Funny, they really couldn't talk to each other except for by telegram. So... In 1915, first transcontinental telephone call, which was 3,600 miles. 
So this guy received a call, this Thomas Augusta Watson on Grant Avenue in San Francisco received a call from Alexander Graham Bell at his off from his office in New York City, facilitated by a new invention vacuum tube amplifier. So then they say that in 1919, their first rotary dial telephones in the Bell system installed in Norfolk, Virginia. So telephones, they didn't have, originally the telephones didn't have dials. You just picked up the phone and a service person would answer and patch through your calls. They had all kinds of weird things in those days where you were on party line systems, so everybody in your community could basically listen in on your calls. <laughs> so yeah, that was about it for phones. So nineteen eighteen so they um they got going on the phones, okay, about like first telephone call around the world by wire and radio in nineteen thirty seven. And in nineteen forty two Telephone production is halted at Western Electric until 1945 for civilian distribution due to the retooling of factories for military equipment during World War II. In 1946, they did the national number planning to give us all of our area codes. 1946, the first mobile phone call, yeah, um, I don't know. They started in 1951. They had direct distance dialing. It's called DDD. First offered on a trial basis to 11 selected cities across the United States. So these phone things, for those of you that are younger, it didn't just whip into being, okay? It was a long process. And to me, it looks like they doled out the telephones like everything else, because if they had doled out the telephones earlier, imagine the chaos that might have ensued, right? So anyway, so I think that's about it on the telephones. I mean, then, they, you know, I've already talked about the cell phones, the smartphones, and all that kind of stuff. Um, they said in 1981, the world's first fully automatic mobile phone system is started in Sweden and Norway. Go Sweden's. And in 1982, we had caller ID was patented, but we didn't get caller ID until after that. Um, we used answering machines, to my memory, up until, I don't know, early 90s, late, late 90s, we used answering machines. So yeah, we've come a long way, baby. So anyway, be safe out there. Goodbye for now.
inside the gold The killer awoke before dawn. He put his boots on. He took a face from the ancient gallery and he walked on down the hall. He went into the room where his sister lived and 
than he paid a visit to his brother and then he he walked on down the hall and he came to a door and he looked inside Father, yes, son, I want to kill you. Mother, I want to. Take a chance with us Come on baby Take a chance with us Come on baby Take a chance with us And meet me at the back Of the blue bus Do not blue rock On the blue bus Do not Never 
See 